this sermon series we're diving into will, number one, give every Christian here a greater measure of confidence as to what we believe and why we believe it. But number two, I also hope that it will give every unbeliever, you say, I'm not a Christian, but you're here with us. And by the way, I want to say thank you. Thank you for making time. We want you here. You're welcome. Every unbeliever or someone who'd say, I'm still checking this out. I'm still thinking about this. I don't know that I believe this, but I enjoy coming here. I hope it will give every unbeliever greater reasons to examine the credibility of Christianity and why we believe what we believe. So let's dive into the first question. Why can we trust the Bible? As soon as you say Christianity... Like some other religions, but probably a little more so even, Christians are a people of the book. There's Christianity and there's the Bible. There's Christianity and there's the Bible. And it's a book. And if you think about it, it's a book with a bunch of words about people we've never met in places most of us will never visit in our lifetime. So why is this so important? And oh, by the way, it seems like words have fallen on hard times today. You notice that? It's like just words, words, words with the internet. And you can't believe everything that is said. I hope you don't. I don't. Gasp, especially on the internet. Just because someone says it, posts it, sends it out there, doesn't mean it's true. You'd be a fool to believe everything you read. So why are we not foolish for believing and trusting in the Bible? That's what we want to look into today. How would you explain to someone who does not believe in the Bible why you trust it? And I hope you realize if this is you, repent today. If you've been guilty, even parents, if you've been guilty of saying, you just got to believe. We just believe it despite there being no evidence for it. Because that's what Christians do. We stop thinking and we just take giant leaps onto thin air based on nothing. Now that's what the culture thinks about us, right? But that is not true at all, at all, on any of the most important issues in Christianity. Christians are still thinking people. By the way, some of the most famous people in our world have been Christians, scientists, and others who think, who think, who think. Christianity has never been comprised of simply uneducated, ignorant people who stopped thinking, and that's how they became Christians. Oh, is faith involved? Absolutely, but guess what else? Every human being exercises faith, not just Christians. Because it takes a measure of faith to look at the data and to consider evidence to either believe it's true or believe it's not. There's no one out there able to prove, prove. It's that you look at it and you decide where you're going to place your faith as to what you decide that you are going to believe. So number one. Right out of the box, here's what you need to understand as to why we trust the Bible. The Bible claims to be the word of God. Now, I know at first you might say, why are you even mentioning it? That's a circular argument. You're saying you believe in the Bible because the Bible says it's the word of God. I know, I know, but hang on. There's a reason for starting here. It's worth starting here. You do realize there are other books that the author never claimed to be inspired, never said it was fact, in fact, admitted it's fiction, but people start treating it like it's real. Example, Da Vinci Code, enough said. Dan Brown never claimed this was history. He wrote fiction, 
And it did sell gazillions of copies. And people started treating it as if it was fact, like it was history. What he says about Constantine and how the canon of scripture came together. No! And so I want you to understand, we don't believe the Bible is the word of God because Christians started saying, well, it's the word of God. And yet the book itself never claims it. It's worth starting there that this book actually claims to be inspired and to be the word of God. People like Peter and Paul who wrote parts of the scripture claimed that it was God's word. Peter in his second letter says this, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul in his second letter to Timothy says, all scripture is inspired by God. God breathed, breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And it's not just the New Testament. The Old Testament repeatedly makes similar claims all throughout. In places like Psalm 119, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. If you called together both the Old Testament and New Testament writers to the witness stand, they would all declare with one giant voice of unison, we believe that we wrote down words as God gave them to us. This is the word of God. And yet, they were not robots. Their personality is there. You can see the differences between the way Isaiah wrote and Paul wrote and Peter wrote. But they would say, we wrote this down inspired by the Holy Spirit so that it is the word of God. Without apology, the Bible claims to be inspired as the word of God. Now, if that's all we had to stand on, that would be a weak argument. Oh, but it's not. There's so much more. I want you to understand, number two, the Bible has incredible unity and consistency. And lest that fall flat on you, listen... It's not easy to write a book that makes sense. It's certainly not easy. It's all the more astounding. Get this. I've only written one book. Sometimes as I travel, people say, I read one of your books. If you read it, you read the entire Brad Bigney library. (laughs) This is not John MacArthur here. I've not written 40 books. It killed me to write one, and it killed me to have it make sense. And the editor kept saying, it sort of doesn't here. Oh, my goodness. I've always wondered, how do co-authors write a book? Get this, here's what's so astounding. This is actually one book comprised of a library of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors who lived on three different continents that included 16 different countries and was originally written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And yet there is a unity and consistency throughout that is breathtaking. Especially when you consider hundreds of controversial subjects that were being tackled. And yet there's a unity and consistency that could not be pulled off by any kind of coincidence or collusion. Something amazing and unique took place in the writing of Scripture. Now I know what you might be thinking... Brad, I've heard there are all kinds of contradictions in the Bible. The Bible is filled with contradictions. Here's what I want you to do, and this will be fun. The next time someone says that, the Bible's filled with all kinds of contradictions, say this. Oh, which one troubles you most? And let me see if I can help you with it. 
Now, you say, but Brad, I won't be ready. You don't need to be ready. Silence will be what happens next. (laughs) Trust me. There'll be like three exceptions in this entire room while someone will give you an example. The average person is just parroting something they heard someone else say. Now, don't hear me saying there are no troubling spots. There are people that have gotten serious about showing what the contradictions are. But the average person is just parroting what they have heard. And you say, Brad, why would someone do that? Let me help you here. I mean, it's like Mark Twain. I love his quote. Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the scripture that don't make sense to me that trouble me the most. It's the parts that are absolutely clear to me that trouble me the most. What is he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. The Bible tells us who we really are in light of who God is and how he's called us to live. And the average human being does not want there to be an authority other than their own or for there to be a creator God. It's not intellectual issues that's the biggest problem with the Bible for people. It's moral issues and lifestyle issues because people want to keep living the way they're living. I want to do what I want to do with my life. Let me give you another example. And I've seen this played out in our church family because I've been here 23 years. I've watched kids grow up and go to college. And there have been enough of them from our church, just like other places. They hit the campus and all of a sudden, within 18 months, they're an atheist, they're an agnostic. And their parents grabbing me with a broken heart saying, do you have any books? Do you have anything? I And I do. But I've learned They don't really want to read a book that confirms the credibility of Christianity. You know what really happened? Almost every time. They're sleeping with their girlfriend and having sex now. Guess what? They feel bad about that. They were taught something different. Guess what? There's more. Their conscience is actually accusing them and screaming because they are a human being created in the image of God. You don't even have to be Christian to have a conscience. He says his law is written on our heart in Romans 2. And they cannot live with this tension of I'm living this way now. I know this is what God's word says. I got to get rid of this tension. What's the easiest way? I'm an atheist. I don't believe any of that. They're not interested in the books that show greater credibility to the resurrection or the Bible or Jesus because it wasn't even a professor that threw them for a loop by saying something negative about Christianity. It's that they began to live in a way inconsistent with the Bible, so I now need to say it's not true. That's what's going on. You say, well, Brad, what about these so-called contradictions? Let me help you here. In 99% of the instances that are being pointed at, it's not a true contradiction. By definition, by definition, a contradiction is something that cannot both be A and 9A at the same time. In other words, if there was a book in the Bible that said Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, and another book in the Bible that said Jesus was crucified in Nazareth, that's a contradiction. Almost every one of the instances that they're pointing to, the people who can actually give you an example, which are few, it's an example of where when more than one person sees something and describes it and recounts it, they don't do it exactly the same way. There's no contradiction. What you're getting is if you pull it all together, that is a more accurate picture of what went down. One person remembers a detail that someone else doesn't choose to include and it doesn't get said all exactly the same way. In fact, that gives greater credibility to the Bible. When you want to put together a hoax, you try to get everybody to say the same. Watch those little shows my wife watches about who killed who. The trouble is, when it all sounds exactly right, it's usually not. 
Someone has come together to all agree to just... That's not, that's not human nature. The same people rarely say it exactly the same way. Number three. The Bible has had a careful and accurate transmission for thousands of years. I'm not talking about the engine of your car. The word transmission means how is something passed along? How's it moved forward? Oh my goodness, like no other book, there has been a very accurate and careful transmission. Just consider the number of early, very early manuscripts that exist today for the Bible. Now before I go any further, let me speak the giant elephant that's in the room. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but I want all of you to know this. We don't actually have one single original document that Paul wrote or Peter wrote or James wrote. But it's no cause for despair. It's not uncommon for a famous ancient document from this time period to not exist. It doesn't mean we have no way of having any confidence what the author actually wrote. And I'm not asking you to give a grace card for the Bible. This is how it's approached with all other famous documents today. When you compare the Bible to other famous documents like Homer's Iliad, it wins hands down. There are 24,000 extant, that means existing, early manuscripts of the New Testament, oh, but it gets better, that were not all found in one spot. The fact that some are in Alexandria and some are in Byzantine and some are on different continents and when you pull them together, there's incredible consistency only makes the argument all the more solid that this was not a collusion, this is not a hoax. 24,000 early manuscripts of the New Testament. And get this, with a time span between the original and the copies we have of as early as 25 years. Now, if you're saying 25 years, that's a long time. Let me help you here. The number two runner-up is Homer's Iliad. And there's only 643 copies, stay with me, with a time span of 500 years between the original and those. And yet nobody's standing with posters on campus is saying, we don't even know what Homer wrote. There's no way we even know. Why do we even study this book and read it? Nope. Nope. Nobody contests it. The authenticity of Homer's Iliad. And there's 643 early copies that have 500 years between them and the original. And the New Testament has 24,000 with a time span of as early as 25 years. So we don't have the originals, but the copies we do have are all dated so soon after the New Testament was written when compared to other famous ancient books that are, by the way, never contested. The authenticity of them are never questioned. No one freaks out. What about the Old Testament, Brad? Critics for years love to criticize Christianity because of... The gap, big time gap that we had between the original writings of the Old Testament and copies that we had. Until 1947 when a shepherd boy threw a rock into a cave and heard a crash. And it turned out to be dozens and dozens and dozens of clay pots that were filled with parchments and scrolls. And get this, Billy Graham and Christians didn't run in there and start examining it and say, Oh, archaeologists. Non-Christian archaeologists rushed in and worked for years piecing together 100,000 
fragments into 800 documents, one of which was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah that was 1,000 years older than the oldest copy we had. So here's a great moment. The whole world's breath was being held saying, now's where we're going to find out how we all think like that telephone game, right? I tell you something, you tell somebody, they tell somebody. By the time it gets around the room at the party, it doesn't sound anything like what it started off. That's what people think about the Bible. First, the Bible was not transmitted orally. It was written. And we're going to talk a minute about how it was written. But here's what they found. They sat down with it and began to compare this now thousand-year-older version of Isaiah to what is being printed in Bibles today. And it was breathtaking. They were shocked. There were no major discrepancies whatsoever. And those, that collection is called, have you heard of this? The Dead Sea Scrolls. 1947. Now you say, Brad, how could there have been no major discrepancies with a thousand years between this version now and what we had? Let me tell you how. Here's what you also don't understand. You got to understand the process by which scribes made copies of the Bible. Masorite scribes. Ooh, this was an amazing and painstaking process. You see, the Jews that copied the Old Testament had strict laws for how it had to be copied. In fact, they had a pen that was just for writing the word Yahweh, Lord. And they would pick that pen up for writing that word, lay it back down, get the other pen, just putting you in the ballpark of how this is going about. But here's what else you you need to understand about the process. When the guy sat down and said, all right, I've been assigned to make a new copy of Isaiah or to make another copy of Ecclesiastes or whatever it is, he would take the original and he would count every word in the book. And write that down. There's 7,000 words. Then he would count from the end and the front to the middle and determine what is the exact middle word of this book. And then he would figure out what is the exact middle letter of the middle word of the book that has 7,000 words and write all that down and put it to the side and then start. And he wasn't starting with big screen televisions going and earbuds in and yakking it up with his friends. Very serious, very careful, very thoughtful. And he makes a new copy of this book of the Bible. When he gets done, he counts the number of words in his new copy to make sure it's 7,000. Okay. Then he counts from the front and the end to figure out what the middle word is. It is God. Yay. Then he looks to see if the middle letter of this entire copy he just made is O. And if it's G, that means something's off somewhere. He destroys the entire copy. And starts over. This is how this was being done. Which is why. It's so accurate. Which is why more than any other ancient document. There's been such an amazing preservation. Of God's word. But I also want you to consider this. That puts the Bible in a different category. From other religious books. Our world loves to talk about. Okay if there's a God and there's religion. They're all the same. You pick your religion. That's so not true. But here's what also is not true. Every religion has their special book. You just decide which one you think is true. There's no more credible evidence for one over the other. That is so not true. Here's one of the reasons. Consider the number of eyewitnesses that existed as the Bible began to be circulated. Folks, that is so worth noting. 
It's what makes the Bible unique. The Quran, the Book of Mormon, and so many other religious books are all someone who had a private encounter with a heavenly moment or angel, Moroni, trust me, with special glasses, you just got to believe me. No witnesses, nobody there to prove or disprove it one way or another. But in the New Testament, Jesus lived and walked among us and spoke in a way that was very public and very documented, not just by New Testament writers, but secular historians that we're not trying to promote Christianity. You'll find You'll find Josephus and Tacitus, historians of the day, just talk about Jesus and things that were happening that the Bible is talking about happening, and they're saying the same thing. Very unlike other religious books. And so these New Testament writings begin to circulate only 35 to 40 years after Jesus was here on the earth. And that means there were eyewitnesses still alive. That if the writers had been claiming things that were not true, they would have spoken up and pointed out the discrepancy immediately. You could not just run around saying whatever you wanted to say. Let me illustrate it this way. Think about it. What if I told you, oh my goodness, this past week, amazing thing happened. UK men's head basketball coach, John Calipari, called the front office, asked for me. Cindy Allison switched it to me. I said, hey, John. He said, I need you to suit up and play in Saturday's game. I dropped everything. It was hard for me to finish this sermon, but I got it done. I suited up and I played in, I had 20, I scored 23 points. I pulled down nine rebounds. I had five assists. I blocked two shots and my 180 slam dunk over the top of Florida center, Kavaris Hayes is being replayed on ESPN Sports Center right now. Right now. You'd say, liar. Some of you were in Rupp Arena yourself, and you're like, I didn't see you, little sweaty man. And hundreds of others of you watched it on TV and said, I didn't see you either. None of that happened. That's what would have happened to the New Testament writers and these books circulating if they had been lying. But they weren't. You think about this, folks. When Jesus fed the 5,000... He acts with a few fish and a few loaves. He actually fed the 20,000 because in that day they only counted men. So when you throw in women and children, about 20,000 people saw that thing go down. That's a lot of eyewitnesses running around. Very, very different. All 27 books of the New Testament were written just a few decades after Jesus' life. So that as they circulated, literally hundreds, if not thousands of people were still alive. So that if Luke, if for example, Dr. Luke was just making things up or even hugely embellishing them, people would have said, that's not true. I was there. I saw it. That's not true either. You can't say that. But Luke never intended, Luke and the other biblical writers never intended to write fairy tale, myth. They were writing history. Because their desire was to convince you that this is true. That's why it sounds the way it does. It's unlike any other religious book that gives so many details. You don't want to give details when you're trying to pull together a hoax. Because details can be proven false. Keep it general. Keep it fuzzy. 
right? Listen to how Dr. Luke starts his letter in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. You, you realize the book of Luke was being written to a man named Theophilus, and Luke wanted him to believe that what he was being taught was true. I'm going to write down an orderly account for you, excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Does that sound like he's writing a bedtime story? I don't think so. That's why just a few chapters later, you'll find these cumbersome sections in the Bible where you're just like, just say it already. Just cut to the chase. Listen to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor in Judea, Herod being tetrarch in Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trunconetus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Just say the word of God came to John. What are you doing? He's writing history. He's writing history, and he, in two verses, Luke has piled up 21 references to people, places, and circumstances that could have all been disproven if it wasn't true. That's all worth noting, folks. All worth noting. C.S. Lewis was a world-class Oxford literary scholar whose specialty was myth, And the specialty of his myth was Nordic myth, if you're interested. And oh, by the way, Lewis was not some non-thinking person that said, I'd love to believe in Christianity because I've never scrutinized anything or been a thoughtful man. Here's the other thing cool about Christianity. There are Christians that were drugged, screaming and kicking to Jesus. Lewis gives that testimony. He didn't want to be a Christian. He did not want to be a Christian. He was an atheist. But he was compelled by the evidence and drawn by the Spirit of God. Not either or. Not he stopped thinking and he became a Christian. He kept thinking and the Spirit of God drew him. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. Let me explain what he's trying to make a point of. Ancient fiction was nothing like our modern day fiction. It didn't give details. It did not go into details at all. It was very vague, very general. That's why whenever you're reading something like Beowulf or the Iliad, you would never find one of the characters mentioning that it's raining or that they went to sleep with a deep sigh. You didn't give details. They didn't write that way. Now, please know that doesn't mean no one has ever challenged the credibility and the reliable history of the Bible. 
They do all the time. And here's what you need to understand. It doesn't threaten us. In fact, one of the best things someone could do is not just keep saying, well, I have a lot of questions, and I don't think it's really true. And I always say to them, including some of my own close family, please don't just keep having questions. Examine it for yourself. Christianity and the Bible can stand up to scrutiny like no other. Do you know how many people have started off saying, it is my goal. I am so sick of Christians and so sick of the Bible being the bestseller every year. I am finally going to be that person that proves it's a bunch of hogwash. And they, get, they convert. Don't hear me saying everyone that examines it converts. Why would that be? Because of the hardness of heart. But oh, listen to me. People come to faith in Christ all the time, not because they didn't check it out, but because they did check it out. And they said, oh my goodness. I'll give you one example. With Sir William Ramsey was a renowned British archaeologist, and he thought that Luke was so foolish for giving so many specific details that could be easily disproven that he decided, I'm going to pick this thing apart. But after 30 years of studying and digging, Ramsey concluded that, quote, Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author should be placed alongside the very greatest historians. Listen to me. People have questioned the existence of Pilate because we had no record of that name. People have questioned the existence of the Hittites in the Old Testament because there was no evidence of that. People have questioned the existence of a city called Nineveh and the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm using the verb tense questioned because they don't anymore. Belshazzar in the book of Daniel, all these were They said, we have no record of that. Guess what? As we keep living life, archaeologists keep, not just Christians that are out there trying to prove it, regular archaeologists archaeologists keep digging and finding cities the Bible talks about. Plates and seals that mention this guy's name exactly when the Bible does. The Bible keeps getting confirmed and substantiated by archaeologists and people who dig and study. You say, but I'm sure it's true of Quran and Mormon. Not. Oh, my word. The Book of Mormon talks about a civilization of people that lived in North America. Hello. And they talk about tribes and cities and mountains and rivers and coins that not one single historian or archaeologist has ever unearthed. Not one artifact to confirm any of this about the Book of Mormon. I just try to be nice when I'm on a plane. I'm often seated next to a Mormon because I like to fly to Salt Lake City if I go to the West Coast because it's clean and I've never missed a flight. So often, if I'm next to someone that just seems really wholesome and fresh and I'm thinking, I bet they're a Mormon. And I'll start a conversation and I try to be kind. I don't do, I'm like, you know your book is too ridiculous. I don't go there. But when I sit next to someone who begins to push about Christianity, I actually say, have you ever read the New Testament? No, do it. Have you ever investigated the resurrection? Do it. With her or him, I know they're hoping I don't ask, like, uh, where's the coin? Where's the river? Where's the mountain? Where's the city? Hello? And do you have special underwear on? Can I see that? I, I try to be nice, but we're in a different ballpark, folks. All together different regarding the Bible. So different. Finally, one of the greatest foundations for our faith. If you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you've just, oh, listen to me. If you want to put together a hoax, don't make predictions. 
don't make specific predictions, 27% of the Bible, it's been estimated that 20%, 27% of the Bible deals with predictions about the future. That's very dangerous when you're making things up. Because it's either going to be true or not. And if you do make a prediction, you want to keep it really general. Like good fortune is coming your way soon. <laughs> right? That's how fortune cookies are. Like, so next week when I get a parking spot near the door at Dillard's, is that's it? Or am I waiting for a million dollars? I don't know. I never know if it's really happened or not because it was so vague and general. The Bible makes incredibly specific predictions hundreds of years before this stuff was happening. That's dangerous if if someone's making it up. And it's dangerous if people are putting it together. It's not dangerous when God himself is inspiring men to write it down. Because he actually wants us to know him and know what he's done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Because he doesn't want us all to die and go to hell. It's a very loving thing. He wants us to believe. He wants us to know him. The Bible contains hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. Yes, there's some things that are being said that haven't yet happened. But the reason you should wake up thinking, oh, but it's gonna, is there's all these that have happened. Exactly like the Bible predicted. Every year as I read through through the Bible, I tell you, Oh my goodness, I'm so struck by some of the most astounding prophecies that have been fulfilled in detail. Take, for instance, just the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel alone, it has been estimated that in Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 to 35, it's been estimated there are 135 fulfilled prophecies in detail contained in those 35 verses that talk about nations and kingdoms and rulers coming and going. So much so that liberal scholars and people that don't want to be the black believe the Bible, kept saying Daniel had to have written all this after it actually happened. He's writing it down after it happened because it's so accurate. And they kept saying that, but they can't say it anymore because of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that make a later dating impossible. For instance, let me give you a few others. Cyrus in the Bible. The Bible predicts the future ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. The prophet Isaiah... God describes how, through the prophet Isaiah, describes how God is is going to destroy the powerful kingdom of Babylon. All right, and you can check out history. It existed. Nebuchadnezzar existed. Going to destroy Babylon through the hands of the Medes and Persians, but more detail, who would be led and ruled by Cyrus. Oh, but then it gets even better. In Isaiah 45, Isaiah actually predicts, as God speaking, calling Cyrus My shepherd, he says, Cyrus, my shepherd will release the Jews from captivity and send them back to their land to rebuild the temple. Are you kidding me? Why would a pagan king do that? And all of that was predicted 150 years before Cyrus was born and it all went down exactly as Isaiah Predicted. Why? Because God is the God of history. God has decreed what's going on. And it all happened just as he had said. Consider the city of Tyre. T-Y-R-E. This was a fabulously wealthy marketplace central city on the coast. And Ezekiel in chapter 26 
predicted the destruction of the city of Tyre by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. That would be amazing enough, but it goes into detail. Great detail in Ezekiel 26. And says that the city is going to be leveled and scraped clean like a bare rock. And that the city's stones and timbers will be, and soil will be cast into the sea. Exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. Wiped out the city and pushed the stones and timber and soil into the sea. The people of Tyre fled to an island that was out away from the coast. And they continued to live there until Alexander the Great came along and took all that soil and rock and timber and built a causeway and a bridge out there and wiped them out. And Ezekiel 26 says, it'll be a bald, bare rock where fishermen will spread their nets out to dry And that's all that's happening there today. And Ezekiel predicted it 1900 years before it all went down. Consider Jesus alone, the person of Jesus. The Bible predicts in great detail the life of Christ. There are over 100 prophecies about his birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his ministry. Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament alone is a stunning chapter describing in great detail the death of Christ on the cross with his face marred and his beard plucked out and it was written 700 years before Jesus came to this earth. Zechariah 12.10 talks about they will look on me, the one they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Listen to me. There are entire books that have been written on this subject. Well worth your reading. This is just kind of to whet your appetite to say there are greater reasons than you might have imagined to examine the credibility of the Bible and Christianity. Listen to me. Since the Bible first rolled off of Gutenberg's press in 1450 AD, it has been the best-selling book every year since. They don't even list it because they're tired of seeing it there. So when you read your list at the end of the year that I like to do and find out what I want to read, they don't even put it there. It's just a given. The Bible sells between 30 and 60 million copies worldwide every year. And I know some of them are just sitting on coffee tables and were given as a gift. But you, it's still worth noting, folks. Why does the Bible have such worldwide appeal? It's not just America. It's not just Europe. It's Africa and South America. Hey, why is there this worldwide appeal of the Bible? I'll tell you why. Because it is not a random collection of stories that make no sense. The Bible is God's word about God's son and what he did to solve our biggest problem. The sin problem that separates us from God. And see, that resonates with every human heart. A, you know. You know there's a God. The Bible says you know that. B, he placed eternity in our hearts. We're not like golden retrievers and aardvarks and houseplants. You can say all day long, when you die, you die. Worms eat you, that's the end. Say it all you want. You have within you eternity that screams out, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. You know that. The Bible has one main character. 
All of the Old Testament is like a big finger pointing forward. We've got a problem and God is going to do something about it. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And then the New Testament is a big finger that just points back. He came. Here's who he was and what he did. And another little finger saying, and he's coming again. He came and he's coming again. So listen to me. If you're here today and I've jarred you at all and you've thought, whoa, Maybe I'll check this out a little further. Listen to me. Don't let your investigation end with investigating the credibility of the Bible. That's simply a means to a greater end. Listen to me. Sure, examine the credibility of the Bible, but that's only so that you can answer this most important question that every single human being needs to answer. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because your eternal destiny rides on that. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So if you're here and you've thought, ah, Bible. Well, now I'll read it. Please don't start with Genesis. Not because I don't believe Genesis. I do. Please don't go to the end. Would you do that with any other book? I'm going to read Revelation. Figure out what the monsters are. (laughs) Do that later. Oh, listen to me. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See Jesus. See Jesus. Decide who you think Jesus is. But don't decide by just sitting in your bedroom mulling over it. Decide by reading documents that are very credible and worth your serious consideration. And oh, by the way, it's so important. There's no other books in the Bible that repeat themselves like this. God thought we needed four views You get to see what Matthew is saying about Jesus, what Mark is saying about Jesus, what John is saying about Jesus, what Dr. Luke is saying about Jesus. Oh, my friend, consider the credibility of the Bible simply so that you can go to that bigger question, who is Jesus? That's why the Apostle John, in his gospel, wrote this in John 20. These things are written so that you may believe That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. He came to give you life. He came to give us life. Eternal life. He came to solve our biggest problem. Oh God, thank you so much for your word. But God, thank you for not just leaving us some book under a rock for someone to discover and say, wow, whole new religion. Oh, you did so much better than that. Thank you for taking on flesh, leaving the glories of heaven, and walking this earth for 33 years. Thank you for giving us a book that is credible, that gives us reasons to seriously consider this This happened. Oh, God, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.